great to be here, and it's good to see visitors, friends, and family. Uh, it's a real privilege to be here to preach God's Word tonight, so thank you for being here. So there I was. I was in Dr. Anderson's PM 101 class. This was about four years ago. This was one of my first classes at Dallas Seminary. And we were all sitting in class, and it was a Tuesday. I know it was a Tuesday because I turned my paper in the following Thursday. And he had graded our papers over the weekend. And there he was, standing before us, telling us this. Class, no one did well enough on their paper to get an A. I'm sorry to disappoint you, but your papers just aren't deserving of an A. I wasn't surprised by this. I I knew the kind of paper I turned in. I was just happy to turn it in on time. You can ask my wife. There were days where I was finishing papers right before they were due. But what happened next did surprise me. Dr. Anderson said, although you don't deserve an A, I'm going to give every single one of you the choice to receive a 100 on this paper. And all you have to do is simply raise your hand. So we're looking around at each other, puzzled and perplexed, not quite sure what's going on. So he repeats himself. This is grace. I'm showing you grace. Undeserved kindness. No one deserves an A on this paper, but I want to give it to you. And if you want to receive it, just raise your hand. So we look around and we slowly start to raise our hand, make sure this isn't a trick or something. And as I look around, I realize that not everyone raised their hand. We as people are perplexed by grace. Unearned kindness doesn't sit well in our society. We are very much so a work hard and succeed. We are very much so pull yourself up by your bootstraps and get going. When someone offers us grace, it puzzles us. Much like in the class, you didn't know what to do because we don't really receive grace very often. Uh, An idea of unearned kindness is, is foreign to us. It mystifies us. We are perplexed by grace. How do we respond to God's grace that saves sinners? This is what we're going to talk about in our sermon today. How do we rightly respond to God's grace that saves sinners? In our text, we are going to see that God's grace is freely offered to save sinners. But oftentimes we're not sure how to respond to that grace. Our text today is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Go ahead and turn there. If you did not bring a Bible, there's some in the pews. And I believe it's page 1,156. Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 10, as we continue our sermon series in the book of Ephesians. As you're turning there, today in the sermon, we're going to first look at our old life in sin. Our old life in sin. We're next going to look at our new life in Christ. And then we're going to talk about how to rightly respond to God's grace that saves sinners. So our old life in sin, our new life in Christ, and how we rightly respond to God's grace that saves sinners. Verse 1 of chapter 2. Our old life 
in sin. And although you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you formerly lived according to this world's present path, according to the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the ruler of the spirit that is now energizing the sons of disobedience, among whom all of us also formerly lived out our lives in the cravings of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Do you see there in verse 1 where it says, dead in your transgressions and sins? To be dead in your transgressions and sins means that you are unable to respond to God in any way. You are unable to respond to the living God in any way. It's kind of like that song that we just sang, except the opposite. We sing a song about God's mercy being a vast ocean. In this instance, our sin was a vast ocean, and we were on an island, separated from everyone we love and care about. A good example of this is uh, Tom Hanks in the movie Castaway. He's on an island, and he's totally separated from all of his family and friends, completely incapable of communicating with them. In our old life and sin, we were dead in our transgressions and sins. And what what this means is we were out of relationship with God. We had no relationship with the living God. This is a good summary statement of our old life in sin. We were dead to God. We had no relationship with Him whatsoever. Continue on in verse 2. In which you formerly lived according to the, this world's present path. To live according to this world's present path means that we were formally conformed to the value system of our society and of the global society. Pretty much, if you were to sum it up, the core value of the world system is self-centeredness. It's all about me. What's in it for me? What have you done for me lately? And we view people, or when we were in sin, we viewed people for what they could do for us instead of their intrinsic value as image bearers of God. The Pixar movie Finding Nemo illustrates this quite well. Do you all remember the seagulls in that movie? Every time the seagulls were shown, all that they would say is, mine, mine, mine. If there was a fish out of water, all the seagulls would zero in on the fish and start to say, mine, mine, and then fight over the fish. If there was a crab, all the seagulls would zero in on the crab and start to say, mine, 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 and they would then go crazy fighting over that crab. This is what it means to be conformed to the ways of the world, which we see here. And we used to live according to that that value system, all about me. So this here is the first description of our former lifestyle. If our formal, former life was dead to God, because we are, we're dead in sin, we're lost in sin, then one of the ways in which we lived out that life was it was just a self, uh, self-focused uh, lifestyle turned inward. So this is the first description of our former lifestyle when we were dead in sin. And then continuing in verse 2, it says here, 
We also live according to the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the ruler of the spirit that is now energizing the sons of disobedience. So not only did we live according to the world and its value system, but we lived according to the ruler of the kingdom of air, the ruler of the kingdom of the spirit that's now energizing us. Who is this ruler? Well, we know from biblical theology that the present ruler is Satan of this world system that's self-centered, that is anti-God. And, but we know that this is Satan also from this very verse when it says who he is ruling over. It says there at the end of the verse that he's, he's ruling over the spirit that's energizing the sons of disobedience. In the Bible, to be a son of something indicates your, your primary affiliation, your, your dominant uh, connection. And in this case, we were primarily affiliated with disobedience. Also in the Bible, especially in the New Testament, when it talks about disobedience, it really hones in on this idea of unbelief in Christ, unbelief in God's provision for salvation. So this is the second description of our former lifestyle. So again, our former life was we were lost in sin, dead to God, and we lived it out by being conformed to the ways of the world. And also, we were ruled over or governed by the ruler of this world, the one who first rebelled against God. And so we were formerly sons of disobedience. And, and we were united in that. We were united in this unbelief of God, unbelief of Jesus Christ. So continuing on here in verse 3, among whom all of us also formerly lived out our lives in the cravings of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and the mind, the flesh in New Testament theology is not, is not the physical body. This is, this is good. Though this is fallen and we're aging and we have aches and pains, this is not bad. This is how we display the image of God. The flesh in the Bible is that part in us, that immaterial part that we are all born with, that is impossible to please God. That is rebellious against God. And there was a time in our former life in sin where that's what we lived out of. That's the way that we conducted ourselves. We were in rebellion against God in our thought life, in our desires, and it manifested itself in our actions. And we see that in the, the very last part of this verse where it says, indulging not only did we live out the cravings of the flesh, but we were indulgent of the desires of the flesh and the mind. That means that we enjoyed our sin. That means that we enjoyed our rebellion. There's, there's many sins that we could list, uh, sexual immorality, greed, uh, drunkenness. These are, these are common sins, but they can all be summed up in this idea that as we rebel against God, we don't need Him. And so no matter what we do, we're just justifying our existence. It's this idea that I am, I am autonomous, meaning that I am separate from God, and so I rule myself, and I can make my own decisions, and that includes pursuing these sinful desires that are fun and feel good, but have 
deathly consequences. And so in our old life, in sin, this is, this is what we did. This was the third trait of our lifestyle, is that we pursued the fleshy cravings. And we enjoyed them. We enjoyed them. So we've looked at our former state in sin. We've looked at three uh, descriptions of our former lifestyle. And here we see the, the consequences, the, the former destiny of this lifestyle. And it says here at the very end of verse 3, it says, And we're by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Children of wrath. Wrath in the context of this passage is God's holy, righteous wrath poured out onto sin, onto sinners, and specifically in the eternal place called hell. This was our former destiny. This was the former consequence that all of us who had not trusted in Christ at the time were headed to. And Paul clearly lays it out right here for us to see. And what's, what's sad in this verse is that our former relationship with God was only connected to His wrath. Because we were dead in our sins, because we indulged the, the desires of the flesh, we, we had no relationship in a, in a father-son, father-daughter kind of way. All of our relationship consisted of was us deserving His punishment, His wrath. So to sum up these first three verses of our former life in sin, we were helpless, we were hopeless, and we were hell-bent. Helpless, hopeless, and hell-bent. I want to I make sure that we understand that we were helpless. As I've talked through this, I, I, I want to, as I've talked through the, the three elements, uh, sin, the ways of the world, Satan, and our flesh, these four things. Though we acted out of these, this text clearly defines that we were in bondage to these. That though we had a choice to sin, this text demonstrates that our former life in sin was, was a life of, of bondage. We were enslaved to these things, these, these powers, these authorities. So this is a bleak picture of our former life in sin. Uh, that's our first point. Our second point, we're going to look at our new life in Christ. Our new life in Christ. Verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, even though we were dead in transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you are saved. And He raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Stop right there. Our new life in Christ. The first component I want to show you regarding our new life in Christ is this, this phrase, but God. But God is the hinge, not only in this passage from death in sin and transgression to, to life in Christ, but it's, it's the hinge of all time. It's, it's, it's where God flipped the tables. And it's where He changed each of us who have trusted in Christ. But God... God stepped in to our helpless, hopeless, 
hell-bent state. But God. He saw the condition and He took a step towards us. So I want to I show you the character of this God who has stepped in to our situation. Verse 4, God being rich in mercy. Mercy. The first character trait. Because of His great love which He loved us. Love. Mercy and love. Even though we were dead in transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you are saved. Grace. In these, in these few verses here, we see the character of this God that stepped in to the darkness, to the bondage that we once were enslaved to. A God of mercy, and love, and grace. Mercy is God not giving us what we deserve. Not giving us what we deserve. We deserve God's wrath. But in His, but God did not give us His, His wrath. Grace is God giving us something good that we do not deserve. We do not deserve salvation. But God gave it to us. Love. God most clearly demonstrates His love to us by sending His Son, Jesus Christ, who bore His wrath, who bore the penalty we deserve in order to save us. God loving us is doing something for us that we need but cannot do ourselves. This is how God loved us. And this is how we see God loving us here in this passage. So we've seen here in our new life in Christ, we've seen God stepping in to our helpless situation. And we've also seen the character of God. Who He is? What is this God like? But let's look now at how He saved us. What did He do according to the text here? Verse 5. Even though we were dead in transgressions, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you are saved. The first of three components in this text of what God did to make us His children, to to bring us from death to life. The first thing is, He made us alive together with Christ. He made us alive together with Christ. And you see that right there in verse 5. Paul is going to use this example and two more to focus on a real physical reality of Jesus Christ that is true to us currently spiritually. So in this case, the physical reality that's true for Christ is God made him alive. See, Jesus died a bodily death, a real death. He died on that cross for sinners. God made him alive. When we trust in Christ, we are united to the power that Christ has received being made alive, and with that, we too are made alive to God. Do you remember in verse 1 where it said we were dead in our sins and trespasses? That means we were unable to respond to God. But God stepped into our hopeless, helpless state and He made us alive to Himself by making us alive with Christ. So if you have trusted in Christ, no longer are you dead in your sins and trespasses, but you are alive with Christ to God. So that means... You have a relationship with God. You are able to commune with God. You are able to 
please God with your, your actions, your lifestyle. And so this is the first thing that we see God doing in making us alive in Christ. The, the second thing, verse 6. And God raised us up with Him. Stop right there. Secondly, God raised us up with Christ. So again, the physical here. Jesus Christ was resurrected from the dead. God did that. When you trust in Christ, you are united with the resurrection that is Jesus Christ. And this is important. When we trust in Christ, this resurrection, this is a true reality now. It's called resurrection living. And and what this means is when God raised Jesus Christ up from the dead, He bestowed on Him all authority in heaven and on earth. So the authority that we were once underneath in verses 1 through 3, the authority of, of sin, the authority of the world system, the authority of Satan, the authority of our flesh, these things that had us in bondage, because we are united with Christ's resurrection and He has all authority, so too do we. We have authority over those things that at one time controlled us, that led us down the wide path, the way of destruction, so that we are able to live a sanctified life, so that we're able to live a life in obedience to God. And this, this has practical implications as well for, for spiritual warfare. The enemy knows that you have been united with Christ's life and united with his resurrection, so he now wants to attack you. You have authority over him, not in your name, but in the name of the one who has been bestowed all authority. So I encourage you, if you do encounter an evil presence, a demonic presence, either you feel it in your your home or you you see it in someone, you have that authority in the name of Jesus Christ to send that spirit away and out. And this is important to know because this is the reality. Although God has brought Christians out of that uh, old system that we were in bondage to, the, the prince of the power of the air, Satan, he's still running the show. So this is the second thing that we've been united to Christ's his resurrection. So finish verse 6 with me here. And it says, God seated us with Christ in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. This is Paul's exclamation point on this new life we have. Not only have we been made alive with Christ so that we have a relationship with God, but we've been resurrected with Christ so that we have authority over these things that once held us in bondage. But to be seated with Christ in the heavenlies means that we also have heavenly power over death. That death no longer has authority over us. And yes, we will all experience death, but it's temporary. It is temporary. That we will be resurrected when Christ returns. And we will be enabled to rule with Christ. Power, authority. We will be able to rule with Christ for all eternity. And so these are the three, three things that we see in this text that God has done for us in our new life in Christ. And just to make the point clear, Paul there at the end of verse 6, in Christ Jesus. He seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. To be in Christ Jesus, when the Bible talks about being in Christ Jesus, it talks about this, this unity 
that we have. We're, we're, most of us uh, as believers, we've been educated that when you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit indwells you. Well, a lot of us don't understand what that indwelling is. To be indwelt by the Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, means you have now been united to Christ. What Christ has accomplished, it counts for you. Where Christ goes and the inheritance for Christ, we share in that. We have been united with Christ. So the the way in which all of this is possible, being made alive with Him, uh, raised up with Him, and seated with Him, is because the Spirit has united us with Him so that we are in Christ. No longer are we in sin. We are in Christ. My wife Nancy uh, loves to take baby Faith, who's right there, just a four-month-old daughter, loves to take baby Faith with her wherever she goes. So we bought this contraption called a Catan, and a Catan is this baby carrier that you can strap on. So here's the idea. It frees Nancy up so she can work, so she can, she can cook uh, spaghetti for dinner, she can go water the marigolds in the front yard, she can go to Babies R Us and, and buy Faith a new mattress. And here's how it ties into the passage. Is baby Faith cooking spaghetti? Is baby Faith watering the marigolds? Is, is baby Faith going to Babies R Us? No. But when I come home and say, sweetheart, what have you and Faith done today? Well, Faith and I, we, we cooked dinner. We watered the flowers. And then Faith and I, we, we went on an errand. We went to Babies R Us. Because Faith is united to her mommy. And wherever her mommy goes and whatever her mommy does, Faith experiences that. That's the idea that Paul is painting for us. That's the reality that what Jesus has done for us and what Jesus will do and where Jesus is and who Jesus is, we are united with him. So he conquered sin. He conquered Satan. He conquered death. We're united in that. No, we did not do that ourselves. He did that for us. We are his children. So this is, this is our second point, our new life in Christ. So we've looked at our old life in sin, a life of hopelessness, a life of helplessness, and a life of uh, hell-bent. Our new life in Christ, this is a life of hope. This is a life where we have a relationship with God. This is a life where we are united in Christ's work, His exaltation. Before we move on, I want to point one more thing out to you. Notice where Christ is seated. He's seated in the heavenly realms. This idea of being seated is an idea of rulership. He's seated in the heavenly realms. And remember in verses 1 through 3, where's the ruler of this world presently seated? He's seated in the air. Christ, and we are in Christ, is seated above this present world ruler. That should give us great confidence, great hope of who we are in Christ. So, grace. As I, as I open this sermon, grace is something that we are perplexed by. It's not common in our society. We oftentimes reject it, just as I demonstrated earlier. So how are we to respond to God's grace, which we just saw here in these first six verses? How are we to respond? Well, if you're not a Christian, then your response to God's saving grace is to trust in His Son, Jesus Christ, for salvation. 
You put your trust in Him. Let me show you that in the text. Verse 8. Skip down with me to verse 8. For by grace you are saved through faith. Grace is the basis for our salvation. We just looked at that, of what Christ did for us. Faith is how you receive that grace. God has provided, and you receive by faith. When the Bible talks about faith, a good word to use for our context is trust. That's why I said trust in Jesus Christ. Each one of us, each one of you, right now, is trusting in something. In something very concrete. You each are trusting in the pew which you're sitting in. You came and you sat down. So that is the kind of saving trust that I'm talking about here. It's more than just a mental acknowledgement of who Jesus is. But it's an action word that not only do you identify who Christ is, but you put your trust in Him to save you. You trust in Him alone to save you. And so, if you are not a Christian, trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Trust in Jesus Christ to be the one who can take you from this this life of, of hopelessness and deliver you to a life of hopefulness. A life that is eternal. A life with God. And to be clear, Paul explicitly states that this salvation that's offered to everyone is grace. He says in verse 8, And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. It is not from works so that no one can boast. God does all the work. It's God's work. We choose to receive it by accepting His Son, trusting in His Son. You get access to the Father if you accept the Son. If you reject the Son, God rejects you. It's through the Son. It's always through the Son. So, if you are not a Christian, and you would like to become a Christian, if you feel that God is tugging at the desires of your heart as we've looked through this passage, and you you now clearly see that I am one of those helpless, hopeless people that's hell-bent, if you feel that God is, is stirring in you and you see the beauty of who Jesus Christ is in this text, if the Spirit's pulling on you, you simply can say a prayer to God telling Him that I am trusting in your Son, Jesus Christ, alone for the salvation of my soul. It's something you can do in the quietness of your heart. But if this is something you do or if you have questions, after the service, please come talk with me or Pastor Keith or Mike or Kevin. Please come talk with one of us so that we can welcome you into the family of God. Now, what if you are a Christian? What if you are a Christian? Christians, believe it or not, just as I, as I hopefully illustrated in the opening story, Christians have a hard time accepting grace. We have a hard time of knowing how to respond to grace. So what is our role in this whole passage of responding to God's grace? I'm going to tell you and then I'm going to show you. We respond to God's grace by showing God off through showing other people grace. Show God off by showing other people grace. Verse 7. Verse 7 demonstrates God's purposes 
in saving us. Verse 7 says, God saved us to demonstrate in the coming ages the surpassing wealth of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. God saved us. One of the purposes in this passage is to, to demonstrate to the universe for all of time's sake the beauty of who He is. In this case, the unsurpassed wealth of His grace. God saved us because it is His purposes to glorify Himself for all eternity. Some of you might be sitting there thinking, well, that's a bit self-centered of God. Well, we don't say that when we look at a beautiful sunset or a beautiful mountain range. We just step back and go, wow, that's beautiful. I don't look at a sunset and say, how dare you being so beautiful and displaying your beauty for everyone to see. I step back and say, thank you, God, that's beautiful. God is far more beautiful, and we will fully see the display of His beauty one day. He's currently displaying that beauty through us, through the salvation He's given us. And that beauty will magnify and grow. Show God off by showing others grace. We see that we have a role in this to play as well. Although God did all the work for our salvation, there's nothing we did. It's simply a gift. And He's now displaying the the unsurpassed beauty of His grace, and He will continue to. He's given us this opportunity to come along with Him and also display the unsurpassed riches of His grace. And we see that in verse 10. For we are His workmanship, having been created in Christ Jesus for good works, that God prepared beforehand so we may do them. Good works. I want to talk about good works. What is a good work? A good work reflects the character of the one who foreordained it to happen. What I mean by that is it says here that God prepared beforehand. So God, for each Christian, God for each Christian has has taken, let's just, just say my wife, And He has created in her life these good works to do. And as she does these good works, she puts God's beauty on display. The unsurpassed riches of His grace on display. These good works that God has prepared for her to do reflect God's character. Now we've talked about God's character in this passage. And I want to remind you, we talked about this starting in verse 4. In this passage, God is merciful. Uh, Verse 4, God is love. Verse 5, God is grace. And I skipped one in verse 4, God is mercy. The good works God has prepared for us to do reflect His character. These good works are works of mercy. These are works of grace. These are works of love. These are works of kindness. These works are hard for us as sinful, broken, fallen people to do. Especially as we live in a world system that is governed by a a ruler that hates God, that hates us, and is constantly blaring at us every second of the day. Do what you want to do. Don't worry about other people. God doesn't care. It's like walking around with a boombox and just having music blaring in your ear all the time. We don't even realize it. We're so used to it. But that's the nature of 
of where we live. And not only that, not only is it this external blaring of a, of, a, of, a, of a message all the time, but within us, the flesh. Although we are free from its authority, we still have the flesh. It's still present. And it still wants to pursue those rebellious passions. It still does, not it always will. We see here that God, in verse 10, has made us His workmanship or handiwork. Do you see that? This indicates here that God has made us a new creation. A new creation. And as a new creation, we have new desires and we have new abilities. So although we have this system, uh, this external message, and we have these desires that are anti-God, that aren't wanting to show people mercy or grace or love or kindness, we're God's new creation. We are His workmanship with new desires and with new abilities. And so it takes time. But it does matter which message you're listening to. Where are you going? If you're constantly flooding yourself with the ways of the world, when that good work, when the opportunity comes to show someone mercy, you'll miss it. You'll totally miss it. Because the world's not telling you to show mercy. God is. And if you're constantly living in the world, you you won't even see it. Or if you do, I don't want to show him mercy. This person deserves my wrath. This person deserves my anger. That's the way the world works, and that's the way the flesh works. We all have relationships, whether it's at work, it's at home, it's at school, it's in church. And relationships are messy. They're hard because we're all broken people. But we have a choice. We have a choice. God is not forcing us to do these good works. But we have a choice to glorify God in what He has done for us. And that choice is clearly stated here in verse 10 at the very end. It says, so we may do them. You have a choice. You have a choice to continue to live your life as you please. Or you have a choice to serve the one who saved you, to glorify him. And he is far more beautiful than anything the world has to offer. So how do we create a habit of showing Mercy, of showing love, of, of showing grace, of showing kindness. If the world's constantly telling us to do the opposite, we need to create a little space where we can let God work on us so that this can sink in deep. Here's what I want you to do. Every morning when you're getting ready for work or your day, whatever it is that you do, and as you stand in front of the mirror, and as you do your hair, or you put your makeup on, or you brush your teeth, or you put your contacts in, Whatever it is you're doing, as you stand in front of the mirror, I want you to look in the mirror, and I want you to remember that you are looking at God's workmanship. You are looking at His recreation that is united with Christ. So that's the first thing. You're looking at God's workmanship. And then I want you to say out loud one of God's characteristics that we see in this text that matches the good works He wants us to do. Look in that mirror and say out loud, Or say out loud, love. Or say out loud, mercy. Or say out loud, kindness. Tell yourself, remind yourself who you are, how God saved you, and what He wants you to do. 
create this habit so that it sinks in deep so that when you do walk into that opportunity, that good work, you won't miss it. That you will show, show someone grace or mercy. In summary, our old life in sin, we were dead to God, incapable of pleasing Him. Hopeless, helpless, lost, hell-bent. Our new life in Christ, He has rescued us. He has united us to His Son. We now have authority and we have power, both over sin and death. And we have hope. And we also have purpose. We are hungry for purpose. Our purpose is God's purpose to display the beauty of His glory, the beauty of His grace. And we do that by showing God off, by showing others grace. So in conclusion, I want to leave you with this. A woman named Mary Johnson, about 20 years ago, she lost her son who was a teenager named Larry. Larry was murdered by another teenager named O'Shea. O'Shea was very much so living dead to God, a life of sin. He was in bondage to drug use. He was in bondage to gangs. And over a, a simple argument, he shot and killed Larry. Mary, the mother of Larry, had a choice. She could continue to harbor anger and bitterness and unforgiveness for the murderer of her son, which she did for many years. As O'Shea was in jail, Mary was glad and just soaking it up, but it was killing her. So she decided to listen to God, and she went to the prison visited O'Shea and forgave him in person. And she didn't stop there. She continued to pour forth grace upon O'Shea by visiting him regularly and befriending him in order to help him learn how to forgive himself. And the story goes further. When O'Shea got out of jail, Mary vouched for him, a felon, in order for him to get an apartment in the same apartment complex she lived at. And to this day, she is still loving him and helping him to get back on his feet and to forgive himself. And she walks around with a necklace, a two-sided necklace. On one side is a picture of her and her deceased son. And on the other side is a picture of O'Shea. Grace. She has received grace and she is showing grace. Brothers and sisters, show God off by showing others grace. Let's pray. Our most gracious Heavenly Father, we come to you through Jesus Christ, the one that you have provided out of your grace to save us from death, destruction, hopelessness, hell. And we kneel before you and we say thank you. Thank you that you have given unto us eternal life, forgiveness of sins. As a gift. Thank you that we trust in your son. That you have revealed him to us. And we see the beauty of who he is. We ask Lord. That we would be able to walk out your purposes. By showing others grace. And we also pray for any. Who might not have yet trusted in Christ. That they would do that today. In Jesus name we pray. Amen.